This program is part of Film Geek Radio. Visit filmgeekradio.com for more great shows. A great hand reached out of the dark and grasped mine for a moment, mightily and tenderly. I said to myself, the veil between, though very dark, is very thin. Hello, and welcome to The Thin Place, the Film Geek Radio podcast devoted to discussions of religion, faith, and spirituality in film. Your hosts for this episode, as usual, are Ken Moorfield, that's me, and Todd, I won't use his full name because that might be a spoiler of where he'll end up truffing. That's me. (laughs) This is episode 20 for July 2012, and as you might have guessed from my rather whimsical introduction, our topic for this episode is The Dark Knight Rises, the 2012 Christopher Nolan-helmed third installment of the Batman trilogy. This is not, I repeat, not, 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 not a spoiler-free discussion, so if you have not yet seen the film, where have you been? And please don't hire Liam Neeson out of the Facebook meme to hunt me down and kill me. We're assuming in a spoiler-free discussion that just about everyone in the world uh, who could possibly be listening to this podcast or interested in the subject will have seen the film. Therefore, why look at this film from a thin place perspective? Well, I would think we've got a plethora of comic book movies coming out this summer. And certainly, you know, one might ask, you know, we, we haven't done podcasts on all these other comic book movies. One might think it's a good question. Why this one and not some of the others? And I, and I think that... Other more, than I still haven't seen the Avengers. <laughs> other than the fact that you still haven't seen the Avengers. I would even argue, though, that, you know, Holding up the Avengers as what I thought is perhaps one of the best comic book movies of the summer. The Batman film tries very pointedly, I think, to deal with big ideas. It's not just an action, blow em up chase movie. There's There are explosions. There are chases. There are, is fighting. All those wonderful things that we look for in a summer comic book movie. But it's also trying to at least pretend to have big ideas. And because of that, I think it's worth thinking about what, what are these ideas and how does the film deal with them. I would agree with that. I think in pre-production notes, we had identified three big ideas that we might try to get through, time permitting. Uh, one of them was this nature of backstories and the insistence of uh, movies of having backstories and where that comes from. The second of has to do with the use of a cross in a very specific place and how that might give us a glimpse into what we mean by a Christian worldview mm-hmm. uh, in a deeper sense besides just having characters who speak the name of Jesus Christ in, in a film. And maybe the third being, as a response to the second film, what the film says about truth with a capital T and the strategic value of well-intentioned lies. So having introduced those those sort of three themes, I'll ask you to start with the first one, since, you know, I think you had brought it up to me. 
what do you want to say, or what did you note about this emphasis in this film as indicative of a larger trend that you've seen about the importance of backstory or the primacy of backstory? Yeah, well, part of it first came about when, you know, some of the early rumblings I heard out of the film were like, oh, it's so long, it's bloated, it's all this. And I was, and so when I went in to see the film, I was kind of thinking, hmm, I wonder what, where is that coming from? And certainly one of the areas that I felt the film could have easily lost some weight is there was this continual focus on the various backstories of Bane, the, the, the ostensible big villain, um, even going back to, into Batman's past, and telling, you know, really focusing a lot of time and energy on these, these backstories. And it reminded me of the Tim Burton Willy Wonka picture. Well, I forget what year that was. Yeah. But, um, and, you know, I am a great, great lover of the Gene Wilder, Charlie, and Chocolate Factory. Um, I was looking forward to Tim Burton's um, version. And the thing about that film, more than anything else, that killed it for me was this need that Tim Burton felt that we, ha we have to explain Wonka. Wonka couldn't just be an eccentric. He couldn't just be himself. He couldn't just be. He couldn't just be. There had to be a reason, an explanation, an understandable explanation of how did Wonka become this weirdo with a chocolate factory. Um, and in, you know, in Tim Burton's world, this turned into, you know, he had some, some tragedy, some overbearing parent, um, these sorts of things. And it, it reminded me a lot of, you know, with Batman, um, with The Dark Knight Rises, where Bane can't just be a force of evil. He has, there has to be a reason. Um, we have to understand. And, and in fact, we have to follow this arc of him being a good person who, or at least a not terribly evil person. And something happened and what's his story and all this kind of thing. And, and I thought, it, I saw it as a great contrast to the Dark Knight, the second in the Batman trilogy, where we get the Joker and no one explains the Joker. The Joker is just Evil unleashed. Right in the film. In the th film, there have been some marginal attempts to explain the Joker and in lots the of comic other books. In the, or, right, but, yeah. but in the film, you know that film, it was just he's the Joker. Mm -hmm. He is just this force that comes out of nowhere. And you know, from a Christian point of view, I think it gets interesting when we we get these films that are just they can't accept that evil simply is. There has to be a reason, there has to be a story, there has to be some explanation. Right. Some logical explanation. Something happened when this person was a child that leads up to, oh, now we understand. Mm -hmm. um, the idea of there being an, un an evil that we can't understand. Yeah. I, I'm not sure if you had said from a Christian perspective, uh, there can't just be evil. Um, I, I actually kind of wanted to tweak that. I have a, I have a long... That is to say, maybe from a secular mm. perspective or a non-Christian perspective, there can't just be evil. Uh, because I think in some ways, the Christian worldview has an explanation for why there is evil. Right. We are born into a fallen world. A fallen world, and we are born with a sinful orientation. And so the larger philosophical question in you know, a Christian worldview is given that, not, you know, why are people evil? 
but how could people ever be good? Right. Um, and I think that I've got a longer, more convoluted uh, answer about the backstory that deals with uh, an essay that I wrote dealing with why I think this Batman is postmodern and it has to do with canonization and myth-making. But rather than parrot that all here, I'll just link to it, you know, link to the mm-hmm. review on the webpage and say that it, as regards to, you know, the spiritual answer for why there can, why he can't just be evil, I, I would say that in, in some ways there's this necessity on the nature-nurture debate that they're in a secular place, we still want to cling to this notion of uh, a humanistic understanding of human nature, that humans are inherently good, that they at least right. start in an inherently good place. And so then, in a very romantic nature, evil must be explained. If everywhere man is born free and everywhere man is in chains, how did he become that way? If, you, if everyone is born pure and innocent... Uh, then it must be environmental factors that that change them into there, and the, and the film goes to some length to I think support or support that idea. Yes, you know whether it is Bane or the story of the girl whose name is escaping me right now, uh, Talia. Talia, oh, no, that's she. She's her name is not revealed to be Talia because that would be too much of a t- uh, tip off for anyone who had read the comic books. Right, but in both of their stories, there is this. This focus on the child was innocent. Mm-hmm. Um, the child was innocence, uh, and even though they were in a in a prison, you know whether they were the innocence or they began that way, and then something happened to taint the innocence. Right. Um, you know, really has that that push of yeah, we're born clean, and then something happens. And you know, as a Christian, for or as we start talking about Christian worldview, mm-hmm. um, that really is, you know, I think at odds. You know, the, the Christian, the, the biblical definition of humanity is that we're fallen and desperately wicked. Yeah. So it, it actually, in um, and I don't know whether it's worth really teasing this out at great length, but it's it's actually part two of the uh, ideological and philosophical muddledness of the film because, in, in many ways, I think it's I think it's ironic that Bane has in his origin, he begins as a protector of the innocent. Right. And it is his unwavering, unthinking, unblinking devotion to the rightness of his cause protecting innocence that allows him to have a black and white worldview and become the monster that he is. And in many ways in the films, Bane is actually a greater foil for Batman. Mm Mm-hmm. Then is the Joker or Ra's al Ghul, you know, because Ra's al Ghul starts off with just this, not with the intention of I'm going to protect the innocent and that means I have to destroy all of these particular people, but I'm going to be the judge, you know, I'm going to be the judge, jury, and executioner. Right. And Bane is actually, I'm going to be the protector of people from from forces, uh, and that's really what Batman is, and yet there is not as much of a self-awareness as I think there needs to be in the film uh, that Batman's mindset and self-justifications actually open himself up to the same sorts of uh, corruption of idealism Mm -hmm. uh, because they're not really that different in terms of their ideals. 
And so what is it other than their situation that allows the same ideal to alternately result in self-sacrifice for the whole city and just, you know, destroying right. the whole city. Um, it, there are answers to that question, but they're probably longer and beyond <laughs> this, the scope. But I do think that there's, there's sort of, um, an insistence on a nurture worldview in the film right. in terms of where it comes down on that whole nature nurture debate. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really, part of the answer or a great part of the answer to your question about like why does not just this film but the Willy Wonka film or films in general of the modern age have such an obsession with backstory you right. know backstories and uh, explanation and exposition and we see this in, in a lot of the comic book franchises you know mm -hmm. the, the first film regardless of how many times we have rebooted the the story. I mean, mm -hmm. thinking of you know, this summer, we had the, another Spider-Man mm -hmm. movie, and we have to retell the origin again, right? Um, you know, and I think you know your essay gets at some of you know that idea of well, we have to start over, and it's not we're not retelling the old story; we're telling a new story. Um, and then subsequent iterations become more about the villain than the hero, because what really interests us is the are villain. the origin stories, and yeah. since we've already told the origin story of the hero. Each new movie has to introduce a new villain and be about the origin story of that villain. And the only thing that's new in the Spider-Man, well, one of the main things that's new in the new Spider-Man is, of course, a new villain. And so he can't just be right evil. He has to be, here's the explanation in his... Yeah, because he can't just be evil. Yeah, I can't say what the explanation is because but, I don't want to get spoilers right. for Spider-Man. But, you know. But it's a nurture. Yeah. And it is still an environmental, it's, something happened and made me evil. Yeah. Um, or at least laid me open to, to that way right. and those choices in a way that uh, other things didn't. So this is kind of moving us, I think, into this second idea that we had about worldview. Yeah. And you had... Talked about a, a specific scene. So, what is? Yeah, that? actually, Jeffrey Overstreet um, first brought it to my attention on a on a film discussion board. Although you said you had confirmed it, that it seemed worth noting that Batman. Okay, I will repeat once again. Spoiler alert: uh, Batman either dies at the end of this film or fakes his own death. Uh, but there's a scene in which Alfred and a number of other people are uh, at a funeral service or a burial service or uh, visiting, and we get a shot of three tombstones, uh, the tombstones of his parents, uh, Martha and I forget, Thomas Wayne uh, and Bruce Wayne. And Jeffrey had noted that the parents' tombstones have crosses on them, and Bruce Wayne's does not. Right. Now... Uh, one of the first things that I note about that is, is much like the Snow White and the Huntsman movie. I find it interesting that there's one and seemingly only one place in which religion is overtly mentioned as being even a part of this world. Well, there is. Um, I, you, you mentioned that in the pre... And I was thinking about... There is the, the, the priest who runs the orphanage. Okay, yeah. Um, now... To be fair, you know, religion, re religiosity, you know, any kind of prayer or something like that is not 
part of references to God or invoking God in the populace or the other characters. But but there is this religious figure. Mm -hmm. I mean, he's got a collar and the whole thing, and he's running an orphanage, which is a very kind of common trope. So we will deduce from that that the Christian religion exists in the world of Gotham City Mm -hmm. and Batman, and yet, for whatever it signifies... When faced with their own death, no one in Gotham City is shown having a religious reaction or response facing their own mortality of what that means, praying to a higher deity. Beyond that, in a more specific way, I find it odd, well, because there's a major theme in Dark Knight Rises of sacrifice. Yes. I'm afraid there may be a tendency in some more superficial Christian readings to read Batman because he's a hero and because he sacrifices as being a, quote, Christ figure. And I think the movie invites that sort of comparison in uh, particularly the lines of, I think it's Selena who says, you've given everything for these people, or you've given everything... And Bruce says, no, not everything, not yet. Right. As though somehow or another what makes him heroic is his willingness to give everything, Mm -hmm. to be a sacrifice. Then the putting of the crosses on there, which is deliberate. I mean, it would have to seem to me to be deliberate to have two of them and not one. Right. You know, just to not have all three of them in a generic sense or not have them on any of them and say religion's not a uh, particularly consideration has to be meaningful in that sense and certainly one of the main ways that i read it is that whatever else we want to think about batman's sacrifice or what he thinks of his sacrifice uh he is not he rejects or the film rejects on his behalf the notion that it is that he is a christ figure that it is i'll I'll use the literary word that he is a type right. of a particular kind of figure or he's a type of a particular kind of archetype. His sacrifice is not viewed as being uh, a type of some mythopoeic larger sacrifice that it is supposed to point you to or remind you of. Uh, the absence of the crosshair is like, no, no, this is different. This is something that he did on his own or that he accomplished on his own because, you know, at the very best, Christ was a hero, and he is a hero, and we're all heroes, but right. not in the sense of all subsequent heroes are types of this archetype. And in that sense, that's part of what I mean by the worldview is not particularly Christian, mm-hmm. not having anything to do with who says the name of Jesus right. or whatnot. But Well, and I, and I think this is also one of those areas, there are times when this film does seem to be rather incoherent. And yeah, that's been, that's been my drum that I've been beating for. And... And, and, and I think this is one of those areas, because I think we get, in going in two directions from that scene, if we go back in the film, we get lots of scenes where various of Bane's henchmen are shown being willing to die. Yes. Um, and, and proudly and knowingly. Mm-hmm. You know, they, you know, it's not like they're just fighting and they get killed. No, they, they step forward you know, in an early scene. Spoiler alert. Um one of Bane's guys, they're all getting ready to escape off of a plane that is crashing, and Bane says, no, you have to stay. They are expecting one of us. Right. And and, and the man doesn't blink. He's right. just like, oh, is, is this going to start a fire? 
yes, you're starting a fire. Oh, and he's ready. I right. Mean, and, and so we get that kind of, which, you know, it'd be interesting, you know, if it was a clear Christ figure Batman comparing, oh, this is like the jihadists. Yeah, there's a lot more political allegorizing going on there there than religious right. allegorizing going on there. And, and perhaps some of that, the film's trying to do a lot. Yes. And sometimes that gets a little confusing. And then going forward from the graveside scene, you know, and this is where I find the film gets a really weird and just maybe just incoherent, is that it then totally undercuts. the You know, if, if the film would have just ended with the burial, you know, even with the explosion, the burial, we're thinking, oh, Batman gave himself for Gotham City. Oh, but not really. <laughs> um we then get this coda where it's discovered, oh, the, the autopilot on the the bat had been fixed. Had been fixed. Bruce himself fixed it. Mm-hmm. Um, so he knew he wasn't putting himself. You know, he knew that he could. He was availing himself of an opportunity to absent himself, to right. fake his own death so that he could go off. And... But that is a very different thing than the Christ-like sacrificing your life and giving of yourself, um, it's not the same. Yeah. And I would mention, too, I mean, I don't really want to totally spend a huge amount of time riffing on this because this is something that I've mentioned on Facebook and I may post it elsewhere. It's also a very different thing from even a Pauline ideal of sacrifice, mm-hmm. of of pouring your life out, not just giving your life, right. but pouring your life out, devoting yourself to a cause. Uh, one of the things that I said elsewhere, and I may link to it on, on the web page, is to the, you know, to the extent this was about Gotham, that it was ever about Gotham, I'm not sure I understand what is meant by everything at this point, you know. Uh, Gotham still, the Gotham that exists after Bane is gone, uh, still has many needs. Yes. You know, Bruce has many things that he could offer Gotham in terms of training of the next generation, in terms of philanthropy uh, for the orphanages, in terms of, uh, you know, uh, business and civic responsibilities uh, and citizenship and his his sort of riding off into the sunset at the end as an earned reward uh, seems to indicate from his point of view or the movie's point of view that he thinks of those things as either being of no value, uh, I've already given everything that I can't give, you know, well, or either of not something that's part of a, a pouring out of the life, but, you know, simply sacrificing or giving self one up. Uh, there's not a sense in which I make this my life's work and I give my life to that in a positive sense, right. not just in the negative sense of I lay down my life right. for that. As opposed to Gordon. You yeah. Know, the Commissioner Gordon, who is, you know, the entire time that Bruce is off sulking mm-hmm. um, after the Harvey Dent thing, you know, Gordon's working right. every day as Commissioner, doing the hard work. Um, and he's seems to be pledging to do it, you know, and we the, the coda, he's still working. Right. You know, he is that, Pauline, you know, pouring out his life for Gotham. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and part of, I, I mean, I don't want to parrot the master plan of evangelism, <laughs> as I've done elsewhere. Uh, but, you know, part of that pouring out of the life is not just doing the work, but preparing the next generation to take the mantle up. I right. 
said elsewhere that one of the first things I, you know, I was taught in InterVarsity Christian Fellowship about leadership training is that when you assume a role of mentorship, your first responsibility and first order of business is preparing the body for the time you're not going to be there right. anymore, making yourself dispensable. And there is that sort of heroic narcissism in Batman of, no, no one else could do what I do until I can't do it anymore, and then I'll just leave and hope that someone will step up and be the next person in line to... Well, what do we do then with, with part of the coda that is so obviously setting up the sequel, mm -hmm. where he basically gives the keys to the Batcave to Blake? Well, does he give them to him? Well, yeah, he as part of the disposition of the estate, he... Yeah, Blake, that's where yeah. he's the thing with, oh, his real name's Robin, ha, ha, ha. I mean, and that that might be a longer answer that, than I care to get into, although um, certainly I'm not the only person who's asked the question of, of how exactly is he going to be Batman as Bruce Wayne has envisioned uh, without the ninja training of the League of Assassins, without the money, without Alfred, right. you, you know, uh, <laughs> Alfred may come back or, you know, whatnot. Uh, but um, there doesn't seem to be that longitudinal strategic, I am going to take Robin under my wing and train him and prepare him so that when the day comes, there will be a smooth transition of leadership. It seems to be like, you know, oh, okay, when I'm ready to retire or on the way out the door, now I'm ready to give things up. Let me look around and see who's worthy, who I will hand off the reins to. Uh, and it just so conveniently happens that he shows, you know, he shows up. But um, so, and I mean, I think there's more to it than that, but that's my yeah. short answer. Well, and certainly, you know, this is a big Hollywood blockbuster movie. They're probably, you know, there has to be another movie. Right. Um, where we get the development of Blake into something else. And, and I will say, I mean, if I wanted to be more, if I wanted to give the movie and the franchise more credit than I want to give it to. Um, I will say that there are, if you look on IMDb, the Internet Movie Database, under the role of not Blake, uh, who is neither Dick Grayson nor Jason Todd nor anyone who was a Robin in the, mm -hmm. the comic books, uh, the orphan boy that he talks to, right. the young boy, is listed into the credits as it's uh, Tim Drake, mm -hmm. uh, and then it says in parentheses uncredited um, or question mark. I yeah, think. yeah, unquestioned, uncredited or question mark. And now the interesting thing about that is for anyone who's read the comic books, the original Robin was Dick Grayson, who eventually becomes Nightwing. Uh, the second Robin was Jason Todd, who was killed by the Joker, and then the third Robin was Tim Drake, you know, who had a back and forth with Batman and, and for many things. Uh, so there may be a hint that uh, not just that the film is setting up Robin to become the new Batman, but Tim Drake to become Robin. And again, if I want to give the movie more credit, uh, then it might be inviting a comparison where Blake is more of that longitudinal Mm -hmm. faithful, strategic thinker of, I'm going to take someone under my wing and comb someone because I can't just do it on my own. Right. Uh, in comparison to his iteration of Batman versus Bruce Wayne's iteration of Batman. 
I, I think that might also be hinted at in the fact that Blake, even before he becomes Batman, makes it a point of going to Matthew Modine's door and saying, you know, why aren't you joining the fight? Why are you, you know, you sticking here? Uh, which in some ways is about giving that character a chance to redeem himself, but also sort of says that, that even now, before while he's just a police officer, Blake is more interested in building... Was that Blake or was that Gordon? That was Blake. You know, Blake goes to his door and, and challenges okay. uh, Matthew Modine and... But that he's more interested in uh, a team or a movement or sustaining it right. than just sort of saying, I'm going to be this singular figure where, you know, uh, Bruce's uh, statements at the end of The Dark Knight and here are, are constantly of that nature of, you know, Gordon says, I can't let you do that. I can do it. I'm strong enough. Right. You, you know, I've given everything. No, not yet. And, and uh, there seems to be at least hints in Blake, if I wanted to give the movie more credit, that... Uh, I I don't have quite as much of the egotism of of Bruce Wayne, right? You know. Um, uh, now I think in some ways that's uh, that's grasping at straws a little bit, but it's there. I was just saying, I was going to move us into number three. I, I, I was too. Okay, okay. So, uh, um, yeah. So I mean, we've been talking a little bit about this ending, and I think it, it is interesting the ending of this film and the ending of the second film get us into some questions about what's really going on, what is true. Yeah. Um, and what can the public handle in terms of truth? Uh, the end of the second film was where Gordon and Batman hatched this idea that they're going to allow Batman, the, the symbol Batman, to take the fall for Harvey Dent's death um, so that Harvey Dent can be put up as the, the hero mm -hmm. that, was, that died in service to the city. They will... Put Harvey up as the great good. Batman is the bad guy. Um, he will be the inspiration or the role model that I could never be. And I'm not exactly sure why. Right. Because by the end <laughs> of the third movie, apparently he can be. Um, and, and then at, by the end of the third film, we do get this interesting thing where Bruce Wayne is basically going to fake his death. Um, why? Don't know. Um so, so that he can be an inspiration rather than yeah. So again, it, it's just, it's a, it's messing with the truth to manipulate the public. Yeah. Well, I I call this strain, um, for a verbal shorthand, uh, the whole theme of the well-intentioned lie. Yes. Um, at the end of the second movie, there is this mythology that is created around Dent that they both know is not true. And so the implication or the thought process is very, I, I use this word in a very particular sense, and I hope I don't offend Christian friends, anti-evangelical. Uh, that is to say, in the sense of evangelism, has this worldview that truth is good, and the purpose of followers of the truth is to speak the truth and to spread the truth. And it is the truth that will set you free, right. not my actions that will set you free or, you know, my actions that will allow you to believe the ideals of the truth, you know, uh, that it's always better to have the truth. I think it's interesting from a longitudinal perspective that Gordon is already beginning to question that. You yes. know, Bane only springs the truth on there after he steals Gordon's speech, you know, but when yeah. Gordon, but even when Gordon goes to make the speech and to say, you know, I think, 
uh, there's the truth. He has misgivings that he he understands or he seems to be struggling with or understanding that even if this seems to be working, at best it ought to be a stopgap until you're able to handle the truth. Right. Uh, although what it is in the second movie that makes them think, uh, particularly after the fairies don't blow up, that people couldn't handle the truth. You know, I'm hearing Jack Nicholson, you can't handle the truth. You, you know, that people couldn't handle the truth. Well, it's um, just, it's that Harvey Dent right. was a well-meaning and well-intentioned man who had a horrific experience that, that warped or changed him. Um, but that, uh, you know, that, that Gordon seems to be like, okay, at best this was for a period and, and not yet. Uh, but any orientation towards the truth seems to be undercut a little bit by the end of the movie, the third movie, at least in Batman's view of, um, okay, I'm back to wanting to create a hero or an ideal or a statue that people can worship because the truth is either not enough or too complicated or too messy and therefore there are these elite disciples of the truth who can handle the truth. He tells Gordon in a roundabout way who he was before right. he leaves. But this knowledge of truth is somehow the domain of an elite few or in a select few who can either handle it or whose job it is to decide what parts of it to hand out to the hoi polloi. And that seems to me to be a very unchristian worldview, yeah, even is. if it's not filtered through religious language. And it's also, I mean, the film is confused, mm -hmm. um, as you point. I mean, so at the end of the second film, and you know, we keep, yeah, you know, there is this big tie between these two films. Um, and so, yeah, the the people on the ferries do not blow each other up. The criminals uh, find some humanity and say we're not going to blow those other people up we're the ones who screwed up the people on the ferry finally decide not to do it well um, they decide to do it but no one has the no will one, no one has the, the will, will to do it. it and so okay they can handle that but they can't handle this complicated truth of who harvey dent is even though the films are fixated upon giving us a the exact thing that you know nolan is apparently saying that people can't handle which is that People start off good, something horrible happens, they turn evil. Um, that's the whole reason that you know, we, the first part of this podcast, talking about the fixation on backstory. Mm -hmm. um, and so then we get this part of the film where Bane kind of comes up and kind of explodes the myth and says, you know, the truth is going to come out. But then Batman doesn't seem to learn in his lesson. I, I'm confused. Is there any ch I mean, is there any chance... I say this thinking about Inception that, in your mind, is there any chance that Nolan is himself aware of that contradiction and is being metafictive in a sarcastic kind of way of sort of saying, uh, okay, I am doing at the end of this film the exact thing that um, Gordon and Batman are doing at the end of the thing because... You, the audience, can't handle the truth, uh, no. which is no. Okay, <laughs> no, and well, it's either my answer is either no, or yeah, you know, it's another theory I have about 
especially the big blockbusters, and and as people try to politicize, which you know this move, people have already started trying to politicize the Dark Knight Rises, which is Hollywood can't afford these big blockbusters to offend anybody because they need to pay them, pay for them, and they need to make their millions and millions and millions of dollars. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, you look at the Dark Knight Rises, and there's plenty politically in there for people of all stripes. All right, let's just give and, quickly one example of something that will appeal to liberals and want yeah, to concern. Certainly, you know, Bane, you know, Bane's movement seems to identify very easily with the kind of Occupy Wall Street sort of mentality. He takes it to violent extremes, but it's easy to say, oh, you know. Right, people who are saying Occupy Wall Street and all these claims of the rich are uh, class warfare. Class warfare. Well, you get literal class warfare because of the the French Revolution and and, uh, Tale of Two Cities, you, you know, backstory where it's literally like, oh, I'm going to use the rhetoric of giving it back to the people. Uh, which really descends into mob rule, right? You know? And you know, and and certainly, you know, the the, the liberals can can pull on this because I mean, it is the rich that are being the evil corporation, the, the poor guy who has to yeah. walk across the ice and the the glee with, yeah, you know, the glee with which we watch the yeah. the liberals being thrown across the ice so, or. or there's plenty there for both sides, and I, and I started seeing this with, or even the liberals with the veneration of Gordon right. and the pol- you know the police. Well, as everybody being, can get behind the as veneration being of police, but. Bureauc- Well, but that the bureaucracies yeah. and, and the rich. It's the Joe Schmo uh, lunch pail, you know, yeah. middle class that are, and that's balanced out by Blake leaving the police force mm-hmm. because oh, structures are bad, and so I mean, yeah, it goes all over the place. And let's be fuzzy enough so that anyone who has an ideology can overlay, you know. um. And so so it's either amazingly subtle, sophisticated, and, you know, intentioned, this sort of fuzziness. Right. Or it's just incoherent. Um, Yeah. um, In either way, it's hard to pull out anything solid that the movie as a unified whole is mm-hmm. moving towards. Mm-hmm. Um, at least I find that it, it hard. When I walked out of the theater, I was trying to figure out, well, what is this film saying? What's its message? And I, have or no what idea. is its, I'll go back to that word. What is its worldview? What is its worldview? Yeah. And I don't know. Yeah. Um, yeah, that blowing stuff up is cool. <laughs> and, and, it looks great on screen. Yeah. And, and uh, uh, and you know, yeah, making the Batman symbol burn on the Brooklyn Bridge was kind of neat. And <laughs> right, although I'm 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 back to making the Batman symbol burn on the burning bridge. It ostensibly would be about a symbol of hope for the people, like the statue. Right, but it's not as though. Okay, I'm going to quote since I've already quoted Jeffrey Gradonis. I'm going to parrot or uh, Jeffrey Overstreet. I'm going to. Parent Stephen Gradonis, you know, it's not as though the film shows the people rallying around that symbol. Oh, Batman's back. Now we can all come out of our houses where we're cowering and join the police force and storming with, you know, Bane's men. It's just sort of like, you know, uh, let me light the barricade, you know, let me light the barricades and say, come join us. The people will rise. Well, no, the Dark Knight will rise. The people will. uh, So, yeah, I, I, I don't. 
there's a part of me that wants to at least leave out one percent that says nolan is being sophisticatedly metafictive or you know uh, you can use sarcasm or uh parody in a means of poking fun at people without necessarily or critiquing something without necessarily making people realize right. uh, that they are. Uh, but, but that's no more than the 1% of holding out hope. It's probably, <laughs> I'm probably with you that uh, it's just, I think I had said in my review that you know, Nolan's problem is not that he doesn't have any ideas. It's that he has too many of them yeah. and that he stuffs them all in the blender and, you know, whirs them up. And then uh, it's like, Wow, you yeah. know, uh, everyone can find little bits and pieces of it to extract uh, and, and meditate on, but it's not like the film does any of that work for no. you of pointing you in the direction of what sort of larger meaning this is supposed to be. Uh, having said that, and having spent most of the time in an, in an analytical thing, uh, I do want to separate that from my overall judgment of the value of the movie and uh, maybe ask you, uh, does that mean the movie's terrible and no one should go see it or you give it a thumbs down? No. No, it, it, it was entertaining. Yeah. Um, it was, you know, action-packed and, you know, I cared about the characters. Yeah. Um, as opposed to some of these other superhero films, I mean, I I cared about the various characters. They did a good job. Um, there are some nice little, for, you know, there's little Easter eggs all over the place for people to have fun with. I right. mean, you know, myself being a Pittsburgh Steelers fan, you know, watching Heinz Ward run down the field as the stadium blows up, that was kind of cool. Um, yeah, could we save Gotham and find some way to, to, he says as a Washington Redskin fan, to make sure the Steelers don't survive. Um, and, you know, and there are some nice story. I mean, the, the, the whole thing with Catwoman is, um, it, it I've never been an Anne Hathaway fan, but I, I thought she was she was quite good in the, she, this film. She was film. great. She was, um, um, and you know, I like these people, um, and so watching you know their story unfold um, what was enjoyable. Right, I, I, I'm I'm right there with you. I mean, as uh, uh, as something that may have or may get ascribed to it, higher aspirations of art with a capital A. Or more significant meaning, I roll my eyes a little bit and say, no, it's a mess. Uh, as entertainment, I was entertained. Mm -hmm. And I think it's perfectly serviceable and I don't have a problem with it making oodles of money and then making other ones, whether it's Christopher Nolan or, uh, or, or someone else. Right. As long as it doesn't have pretensions. Or expect me to bow to those pretensions, which you know maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. But you know, as entertainment, it, I it's entertaining. There's a lot to be entertaining. That 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 big motorcycle with the wheels. That, oh, that's cool. Uh, that, <laughs> that, uh, that turn is uh, you know is just a lot of fun. It is really cool, and um, there's just a it was entertaining. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Anything else? Nope. All right, uh, Todd, thanks for, for your input. Thank you, everyone, for listening. If you have questions or comments about this episode, feel free to drop us a comment at thethinplace at filmgeekradio.com. 
you can also follow me, Ken, on Twitter at twitter.com backslash Ken Moorfield or read my reviews, including my rather lengthy review of The Dark Knight Rises invoking Ihab Hassan's 11 defiance of postmodernism at the number one morefilmblog.com. This has been a Film Geek Radio production. Film Geek Radio! Yeah!